Welcome to week one of this year's discipleship campaign, The Gospel, Living the Good News of Jesus Christ. This week, we're going to be focusing on what is the gospel, because it's a term that not everyone agrees with or uses in the same way. The gospel is a word that's not even resigned to simply a church life. Some people use the gospel when they're describing an absolute truth, or sports enthusiasts or others may say that this particular book or handbook is the Bible of their sport or industry. And many people use the gospel in ways that even in the church have a lot of different definitions. This week we're going to be focusing on the fact that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I give to you as of first importance and I passed on to you this message that Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again the third day and he appeared. That's the heart of the gospel message. And so this week we're also going to be focusing on why the gospel is news, particularly why it's good news, what it really means to believe this gospel, and how would we or others know when we've really believed it. And then we're going to be focusing as well on what it means to proclaim the gospel, not just with words with people we meet, not just here, but around the world, but also how we live out this message that we believe in a way that people can see it and come to embrace the good news that is Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking at what is kind of the bedrock verse or the theme verse for our whole campaign over these six weeks, and that is Paul's explanation or presentation of what the good news, what the gospel really is. I hope your small groups have done well, and for those of you who are tuning in out there, we welcome you. We realize you are watching here locally. Some of you are watching across the country, and even right at this moment, around the world. It's nighttime where some of you are watching. And uh, we've mailed out books to some who are doing it on the East Coast and other places. So thanks for being with us today. And we hope this will be a great time as we share together in the good news. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote to encourage these Christians to stay true to the gospel. And this is what he wrote when he said in verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Remember, at the time Paul wrote this, many opposing voices were coming in and distorting the truth of the gospel. So he said, I want to remind you of the truth of the gospel. Verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. Let's pray together. 
Father, I thank you today for this tremendous opportunity for us to be grounded together in an understanding of the most important message that's ever been given, the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm praying not only will it inspire us in a deeper way to believe and share this message, but to be certain that we ourselves have come to believe and accept this message that we might be saved from our sins. So, Lord, I thank you for this dear group of people, for what you have out in front of us by your grace. And as we begin today, God, may you teach us what the gospel really is, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The purpose of a newspaper is to get out the news. And when the news is especially great, they have a higher responsibility. That's why many news editors have a very special tool they use to get out the biggest news they don't want anybody to miss. They often refer to it as second coming type. It is the biggest letters for the biggest headlines announcing the biggest news. And throughout our history, there have been some amazing second coming headlines. For example, in uh, July 21st, 1969, I still remember a copy of the New York Times. I was alive at that time. I know it's hard to believe. That was years ago. 1969, you remember? From side to side, huge letters across the New York Times. Men walk on moon. An amazing time on July 21st, 1969. Or another famous headline in the Chicago Tribune from November 3rd, 1948. Many of us are too young to remember this. Some are not. Um, Famous headline that you can Google right now and go see it for yourself. Dewey defeats Truman in the presidential election of 1948 when the fact the opposite was true, Truman had defeated Dewey. Or the headline in last week's Contra Costa Times. On the front page, MFL says no to Raiders. Now, if you're a Raider fan, that's good news because that means your team's not leaving to go to L.A. for at least another year and maybe longer. And if you're not a Raiders fan, you probably could care less. Anyway, each, <laughs> in each of these cases and thousands of others, the good news is displayed in second coming type, they call it, because they don't want anyone to miss it. But of all the news ever announced, there is no news higher, no news better, no news more important, no news more universal than this good news. Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day, according to the Scriptures. And he appeared. The Apostle Paul said, I give you that as of first importance. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're beginning a six-week adventure together called the gospel, living the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not just a message to be spoken. The gospel is not just words. The gospel is a life to be lived. It's Jesus' life. In fact, we're reminded as disciples of Jesus, and by the way, there's no concept I can find in the Scripture of anyone who's content simply to have believed the good news, been saved from their sin, and then rest on it. A disciple is a reproducer. A disciple is one who has the life of Christ being produced in them by Jesus himself and the power of the Holy Spirit, and allows their life to be used by Jesus to reproduce his life in someone else. That's the whole idea behind being a disciple. 
The good news of the death, burial, resurrection, and appearing of Jesus is the centerpiece of how God makes people disciples. The Apostle Paul put it like this in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And what's after that? It's our memory verse for this week. For I passed on to you as of first importance. Excuse me, I, I should learn the memory verse. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. I've learned it in several versions. I keep getting messed up. I passed on, oh, what was it again? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the Twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to the rest of the apostles. And then last, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul said, I felt so abnormally born in this that I don't even deserve to be here. But it's by God's grace that I am, because I believe the good news. In the workbook this week, I pointed out that that's the gospel. It's simple. The gospel is the good news of the death, burial, resurrection, and appearing of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised the third day. He appeared. He's alive. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The ramifications of the gospel, its applications, the effects of its power, its meaning, and its consequences for every human life are vast and detailed and can take a lifetime to unpack. But the heart of the gospel is the simple good news of Jesus Christ, and there is power in it. That's why this week we're learning in week one that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ that is to be lived out for all to see. How is this good news lived out? Well, first of all, you have to believe and receive it, Paul said, and then you have to pass it on. The good news of the gospel is lived out when we believe and receive it. Paul said in verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. Verse 11, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. You cannot live out what you do not possess. This week in the workbook, I told a little bit of the story about my mom. She died in 2007, a couple of days before Christmas. My mom story is significant, not just because she was a great lady and a wonderful mom, but it's how the gospel worked in her life. You see, my mom grew up in the church. She knew about Jesus, but she didn't believe the gospel. And time and time again, I would share with my mom, Mom, look, I know there are things you keep saying you have to get right before God will accept you, but you've got it backward. You've got it backward. 
those things you, need, you think you need to fix, those sins you say you've got to get right before God will accept you, he's already accepted you. He already loves you. He already gave his life for you. He died on a cross. He was buried. He rose again. He's alive. He conquered sin, death, and the grave, and he's offering you hope and forgiveness and eternal life. It isn't about you working harder, Mom. It's about you believing what God has said. It's about believing the gospel, the good news of Jesus. You see, it isn't enough to believe Jesus exists or even that he died and rose again. My mom believed that, and she wasn't saved. She believed it the same way the demons believed it. Remember the Lord's brother James in his book? He said, the demons know who Jesus is. They believe in his existence. They know his power, but they're not saved. They're not saved. In fact, they shudder, James said. They, they know the reality of who Jesus is, and they realize now what that means for them in judgment. Paul told the Corinthians, this gospel will save you if you believe it, if you receive it, and you hold fast to it. Because you see, there were people coming into the churches right on the heels of Paul trying to convince them, no, it's not salvation and the good news of the gospel. You also have to be baptized. You have to be circumcised. You have to be all these other things. And Paul said, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. It's this simple. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again, and he appeared. That's the good news. You believe that, it'll save you. Don't let go of it. It's what you received, he said. You laid hold of it. You heard it. You saw the opportunity. You took hold of it. On this gospel, you have taken your stand, he said. You have believed it. You stand on it. It's become a life-saving foundation for you, so much so that when these other contrary views come in of different gospels, you don't have to fall for them anymore. You have a firm foundation. This is what you believed, he said in verse 11. It's a word that signifies being persuaded. In other words, you heard this, and you trusted it, and you trusted God, and you believed him. Not mere credence or lip service or profession. You have put your full confidence in this, and you rely on it. Then he said, by this, you, by this gospel, you are saved, saved from your sins, declared righteous, made right with God, and brought into relationship with him. By grace, you have been saved through faith. You believed what God said, and you've responded to it. You've stopped trying to earn it. You've stopped trying to get better. you stopped trying to get right with God by going to church and reading the Bible and getting baptized and taking communion. Works are useless. You've understood what God said, and you believed him. It's by the death, burial, resurrection, and appearing of Christ that you are saved. That's why Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, verse 8, for it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation has always been by faith. It was by faith in the Old Testament. It's by faith in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they had to believe God, and by faith believed that that coming Messiah they were told about would cover all the sins if they would just believe God. And today... We believe God by faith, looking back, trusting that the Messiah who came is the one who paid for our sins and brings us into relationship with God. So whether it's Old Testament or New, salvation has always been by faith. That's why when Paul was writing to the Romans, who also were being inundated with false gospels, some of the Jews who were there kept saying, well, you know what? Abraham was different. No, he wasn't. 
Abraham was saved by faith too. He's the father of all who believe. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In fact, the more you try to do to save yourself, to make yourself right, the further from God you move. Paul went on to say in Romans 4, verse 4, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, if you want to work for your salvation, you're going to get what your works deserved, and it isn't the gift that God is offering. You're not going to make it. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. People, that's good news for a guy like me. God's not going to count my sins against me because I believe the gospel. You see, Abraham was saved when he believed. David was saved when he believed. James, John, Peter, Paul were all saved when they believed. I was saved when I believed. And so was my mom. So was my mom. It was the first week of December in 2007. I got a call from my brother who said, Larry, mom's not doing well. I don't think she's going to be with us much longer. So I flew back to Maine, got to her little duplex apartment, went upstairs. She was lying in the bed, man. She was just a shell of what she was. I, have a, I had a great relationship with my mom. We were close. I loved her, and I knew she loved me. And I remember taking her by the hand. I said, Mom, you know I love you, and I've been sharing with you for years. And I said to her, Mom, look, I can handle you dying. I can't handle you going to hell without Jesus. I have to know. Have you believed the gospel? Do you know that Jesus Christ died for you, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day, and that he appeared, and that people are saved when they believe this and receive it? And I'll never forget the moment she said to me, yes, Larry, I have believed the gospel. I asked Jesus to save me two years ago, and I said, thanks, now you tell me. You see, when you believe and receive the gospel and you believe that it's the most important news and that people aren't going to be saved unless they hear it, it changes the intensity with which you share it. You can't keep it to yourself. It's too good. That's why in the workbook this week, I said when the gospel is preached, when we hear God say that sin separates us from him and will forever separate us if sin isn't cleansed, do we believe him? 
And when we hear God say that Jesus, who had no sin, took our sin and died with it on the cross to make our payment, do we believe him? And when we hear God say that when our payment was made, Jesus was buried in a tomb dead, do we believe him? And when we hear God say that three days later he raised Jesus from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave for us, do we believe him? And when we hear God say Jesus is alive, offering hope, forgiveness, and eternal life to all who will believe and receive him, do I believe him? For when I hear God say these things, I've heard the gospel. The question then is simple. Do I believe God? Will I repent, turn from my sin, rebellion, and ignorance, and turn fully toward Jesus and trust in him? Will I step out by faith, abandon my selfish and wicked ways, believe what God has said, receive Christ into my life, and surrender to him? Or not? When we do, you know you are saved. Not by some feeling but by the truth, because you're holding firmly to God's Word. That's why Paul told these Corinthians in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the Word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. He's not talking about hold on or lose your salvation. He's talking about the fact if you don't hold on to this gospel that I've preached to you, the good news that it is, and you start watering it down with all this other stuff or making it more complicated than it needs to be or changing it from what it is, then everything you're hearing is in vain because you're not listening to the truth. Hold firmly, he said. Literally, it means keep it in your memory. Hold on to God's word and don't let it go. You believe what God said. Now continue to believe what God said. Continue to believe what God said. Otherwise, he said, you have believed in vain. You believe without cause. You believe without real effect. That was my mom. She had heard the gospel. She had heard the good news, and she believed it to a degree. But she didn't believe all that God had said, that she had to let go. She had to repent. She had to trust God. She kept thinking she had to do something to make herself right. That's not the gospel. Remember, Christianity is not a lifestyle. It's not, I got to go live these things and then God will save me. Christianity is the living of a life. A lifestyle can be duplicated. People can be moral, they can be conservative, they can go to church, they can carry a Bible, they can be good people, but they're not saved because they're living a Christian lifestyle. But Christ-like life can only be produced by Christ himself, living in us and living out through us. And when we believe and obey his word, his good news, his gospel, we are saved. When Paul wrote to Timothy, his young understudy in the faith, in the last letter we believe he ever wrote, he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, he has saved us. Imagine Paul writing this to this young man who's going to be taking over leadership in the church at Ephesus. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, 
who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. What day? The day I see him face to face. So you can't give away what you don't have. So Paul said, if you're going to live out this gospel, you've got to believe it, and you've got to receive it. And when Christ comes to live in you, really live in you, and you believe the gospel, it changes you. You find it harder and harder to keep it to yourself because some news is just too good not to share. And not only when you believe and receive it, but the good news of the gospel is lived out when we pass it on. Paul said in our memory verse for this week that I can't remember, verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul said, I'm like a stillborn child. I don't deserve to be here. But God was so gracious to me, I am. Amazing. For I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. The good news is passed on when our lives match our words. I was reading this week an article by Karen Boda, who is a writer in a newspaper back in Michigan called The Sentinel Standard. At least I believe it was from Michigan. He was telling a story a couple of years ago. A Michigan judge handed down an unusual ruling. Judge Raymond Vogt has, has a clearly posted policy in his courtroom that electronic devices causing a disturbance during court sessions will result in the owner being cited with contempt of court. He usually imposes a fine of $25 on top of that. But on a Friday afternoon in April 2013, he enforced that policy on himself. During the prosecutor's closing argument, the judge's new smartphone, which was in his shirt pocket, loudly requested that Vote give the phone voice commands for voice dialing. Vote said, I'm guessing I bumped it. It started talking really loud, saying, I can't understand you. Who do you want to call? What number are you seeking? He said, my face got red as a beet. Vote tried to turn it off, but the phone kept talking and talking, creating a disturbance in the whole courtroom. Meanwhile, he's got all these signs posted around. If your cell phone goes off, you'll be in contempt of court and fine. Vote added, I set the bar high because cell phones are a distraction and there is very serious business going on. The courtroom is a special place in the community and it needs more respect than that. I tow a tough line, and I got to back it up this afternoon. At the next recess, 
Vote held himself in contempt of court, fined himself $25. Later on, Vote said, judges are humans, they're not above the rules. I broke the rule, and I have to live by it. He stepped forward and paid his fine to the bailiff. You know, when I read that, I thought, isn't it true that people's words gain credibility when their words are backed by action? When people say one thing but don't actually live it themselves, their words are not believed. In fact, they become a mockery. That's why it's so important for people who proclaim that they are believers and followers of the best news ever given by the greatest one who ever gave it, that they would also have a life that demonstrates that the gospel is real. The number one reason that people give today still that they reject the good news of Jesus when they hear it is the inconsistent life of Christians. Talk to some of the kids coming from the community to our youth group or down at the COC. One of the reasons they rebel against their Christian parents is they don't see the gospel that's preached lived out by their parents. Now, people, we've got to remember not any of us are perfect, least of all me. One of the reasons I am so open about my flaws is I have so many of them, it's pointless to try to hide them. People are not looking for perfection in Christians. They're looking for something genuine, something that's real. That's why when we live out the good news, we need to own what we do. We don't need to pretend to be perfect. People know we're not. We need to tell people, look, I don't have this all dialed in yet. And there's nobody yet who fully lives like Jesus. We will someday, but we don't yet. I love Jesus and I want to follow him and I seek to let his life be displayed in me, but I don't have it perfect, so believe me, what you see in me is not completely like Jesus. But I can tell you Jesus was perfect and his word is perfect. And the more we're honest and genuine about that when we share this good news with people, the more they can have respect for what we're saying. You see, that's why the Corinthian church and so many others believed the gospel because it came to them through a man who lived what he preached. That guy was Paul. Paul passed on the gospel by what he said and how he lived. He passed on the gospel with words. You know what he said in verse 3? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And what did he tell them? He gave them the words of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared. This is what we preached. This is what we told you. This is the good news. This is what you believed. Many people do not share the gospel because they're not sure of what the gospel is. They hear all the ramifications of it, all the applications of it, all the different versions of it, and they think, I can't understand all that. I can't explain all that. You don't have to. The gospel is simple. And people are afraid to be embarrassed or unable to answer different questions. People, let me say this. We need to be able to defend our faith because our faith is truth. But we don't have all the answers. I don't, neither do you. Apologetics, the whole science of defending what we believe, apologetics is not evangelism. You don't have to win all the arguments to see people come to Christ. You have to share with them the gospel. 
I've shared with the congregation before, there was a young man in Oregon in our youth group there when I was leading the college group. Nobody's going to be surprised to have me tell you that most college kids are a lot smarter than me. They were then, and they are now. They come up with stuff. I have to ex Can you explain the terms you're using? Because I don't even know what you're asking. I might be able to answer if you tell me what you're saying. They're way beyond me. There was this guy there, Jeff, who kept coming to our youth group. I'll make this short. He came for two years. The kid was an intellectual. He came with some of the best arguments you've ever seen against the gospel. And I would meet with him. We'd meet together. We'd go to the beach together. We'd hang out together. He'd come over to the house. I, for two years, I answered that kid's questions. I blew apart all of his arguments. And he was no closer to accepting Christ two years later. One day, in frustration, sitting at our kitchen table in our apartment, I opened my Bible, I shoved it across the kitchen table, I was angry, and I said, read this! <laughs> it was Romans 5.8. I said, read it! So he read it out loud. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he started to weep. And he confessed his sins. And that day at our table, he asked Jesus to save him. Two years, I answered all his arguments, nothing. I give him one verse that got the heart of the gospel, and it turns his heart to God. It doesn't always go like that, but I'm telling you, you can't save anybody. God saves people through the power of the gospel. And we don't have to have answers to all the arguments. We've got answers, believe me, because we've got truth. But you don't have to know them all to do this. You have to be able to share the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared. You've got to deal with that. That's truth. That's why when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel, he preached it the same everywhere. Remember Romans 1, verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is universal. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul wrote to encourage the Corinthian church to remember how he had passed on the gospel to them. He said, look, I didn't come to you as some powerful preacher. I didn't come to you because I was so eloquent. In fact, the Corinthian church used to say, you don't have any of the speaking ability of these famous orators who come through here. And Paul said to them earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I don't want you to be persuaded to believe me, Paul said. I want you to be persuaded to believe God. God's Word is in the gospel, and it's saving people who believe it. Isn't that interesting? Paul was used by God to write half the New Testament. You talk about a guy that could defend the faith. 
And he said, but when I was with you, I didn't win you over with sound arguments. I won you over by telling you the gospel. I shared with you the truth, the good news. You know, I, sometimes we make this harder than we need to. It's scary sharing this with people sometimes. We, we're going to get rejected, or they're not going to understand, or they're not interested, or they're going to think we're weird. The last part I got over a long time ago. I was weird before I met Jesus, so I don't, I don't worry about that anymore. Everybody thinks I'm weird. But anyway, it's amazing what you can open up in a conversation at work, with your neighbor, on an airplane, walking down the street with a waitress you have at your favorite restaurant. If you get the opportunity, it doesn't always work out like this, but many times you can create the opportunity simply by saying, have you ever heard the good news of Jesus Christ? I have, and it changed me. Have you heard it? If they say yes, you say, oh, that's great. Have you believed it? If they say no, you say, oh, well, man, I'm sorry. Would you mind I take a moment to tell you? It's amazing what God will open up just with that. Paul shared it with words, but he also shared it by how he lived. You see what he said in verse 9? I'm the least of the apostles, don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace was, to me was not without effect. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Yet, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, this is what you have believed. Paul said, if you don't live this out, you've received the gospel in vain. You, you've heard it, but you haven't really believed it. And Paul said, I believed it because I'm not the man I was. I'm not the man I was. I'm different. I love God, and now it shows in my obedience. I love people, and it shows in my desire to spread the gospel to them. In fact, when Paul went around, what happened in the Thessalonian church, you can read it later, 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning of verse 2. It's amazing. This church was known all over the empire for their faith in following Jesus, and Paul was the one who helped lead them to Christ. And you know what he said to them? You know how I lived while I was among you. You saw it, and now you are following our example, and you are living out what you saw lived in us, and now the whole empire knows that you're following Jesus. Joe Aldridge was a professor of mine at Multnomah University up in Portland. He was president of the university. He was a teacher. He wrote a book called Lifestyle Evangelism. It was a little controversial at the time because he was telling Christians how to build relationships with unbelievers. Are you aware today that typically, once you've been a Christian for two years or more, most Christians who've been a Christian two years or more don't have any meaningful contact with unbelievers? It's no wonder the gospel never gets shared. But Joe Aldridge used to tell us how to build relationships with unbelievers, to be in the world but not of it. And he used to tell us all the time, guys, when you go out, learn to play the music of the gospel. And it'll earn you the right to share the words of the gospel. He wrote in his book, Lifestyle Evangelism, our world is full of professing Christians who claim to believe the truth but are producing ugliness. 
They can't get along. They fight. They gossip. They often act like they were weaned on dill pickles. Instead of being being an ambassador in the world, they're an embarrassment to the world. They fight for truth, but they have no grace. Their words are not believable. But when our words and our lives align, not in perfection, but in genuineness, the gospel will be passed on, and people can believe it's true. Last month, when I had the privilege of speaking at our men's breakfast, the guys just finished up a year of the walk of a godly man. This year, it's the lifestyle of a godly man. And I was sharing with the guys about one of, if not the most godly man I ever knew. His name was Dr. Heath. When I became a Christian, Dr. Heath was in our church, and he took me under his wing. I found out later he had done that with dozens and dozens and dozens of young men like me through the years. I knew he was a well-known doctor. I knew he was known internationally, and I knew he was well-to-do, but you would never know it by the simplicity with which he lived. In fact, you go to their house today, it looks the same as it did 30 years ago. I don't even think they've... I don't even know if they've changed the slip covers on the couch. Dr. Heath died a couple of years ago. Um, He took me to work. He was chief of staff of this hospital south of Seattle. Um, But he also kept his patients. And... He took me to work with him one day. He said, Larry, I want you to come to work with me. So I went with him. When I got there, I felt like I was walking in with the president. I mean, everybody knew this guy. It was obvious they respected him. He took me around. Obviously, I didn't say anything. I just kind of stood in the back and watched. But he went to patient after patient after patient as he made his rounds. And the way he interacted with those people, they loved this guy. And he cared for them, and I could tell. And I thought, man, here's a guy that's living out the gospel. He's not, he's not preaching to him. He's just living it. But what I saw later that day in his office is what impacted me the most. He brought me in, big office, top floor of the hospital. He says, I, I want you to sit over there in the corner, Larry. I, I have some things I want to say to some of my patients. So I sat over in the corner. One by one, the nursing staff rolled these people in, or they came in on crutches and sat down. And uh, he came around the corner of his desk, sat on the corner, and just said to them something like this. Like, he said it to each one, so I went something like this. I have really enjoyed being your doctor. Thank you for the privilege I've had to serve you. And I want you to know I really care about you, and I've given everything I can do to give you the best medical care, and I have good news. You, you are being healed. And uh, very soon we're going to check you out. I just want you to know it's been a delight to know you. But he said, I want you to know that um, while I've given you the best care I can as your doctor, I want you to know I'm also concerned about you spiritually. And I want to know if I could take a moment just to ask you, have you ever heard the good news of Jesus? People would say yes or no, and then he would say to them, would you mind as your doctor if I just took a moment to share the news that's changed my life. Not a single person turned them down. 
And I, I sat there in the corner of his office and I watched person after person after person after person be wheeled in to hobble in and sit down. And he's sharing with them the good news of Jesus in the most natural way you could tell this guy was deeply concerned for the salvation of these people. Some accepted. Some said they already knew. Some said, nah, it's not for me. When we were driving home that day in the car, this is the part that impacted me the most. He said to me, Larry, look, I'm a doctor but that's not my vocation. My vocation is I'm a Christian. And my number one joy and responsibility in life is sharing the good news of Jesus with people. Being a doctor is my avocation. I'm to do that the best I can do to earn the right to fulfill my real vocation. I never forgot that. Paul said, I passed on to you as of first importance. First importance. Nothing you'll ever hear is more important than this. It's the gospel I preached and the gospel you believed and received. You've taken your stand. Now pass it on. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared. When you believe that and receive it, it changes you. And your desire to pass it on is the desire that Christ has to pass it on. Because you never know when you share it if you're planting a seed for the first time, watering what someone else has planted, or you're about to have the joy of the harvest. But Paul said, I passed it on. I lived it out. That's the gospel. And we live it out because some news is just too good to keep to ourselves. Father, I want to thank you for this whole study. It has deeply impacted me again. And it's reminding me that my vocation is not being a pastor. My vocation is being a Christian. My calling is to share the good news. My avocation is that I happen to be called right now to lead a church and to serve along with a great group of people. Lord, we have many avocations represented in this room, but only one vocation. And I'm praying that whether we're here today and need to receive Christ for the first time or whether we're here and need to believe the gospel and live it, I'm asking that through this time together in our small groups and our daily meeting with you in the workbook, you will produce in us the life you want us to live a life that lives the good news of Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen.